This is an I Am Listening original podcast. I grew up in Kent. You know, I grew up in Hyde. I went to school in Folkestone. I worked for Kent MPs, Michael Howard and Damien Green, before I was an MP. And, you know, now being a Kent MP is something that I feel really, really proud of. Welcome to the Kent Politics Podcast, your go-to source for insightful discussions on local and national political matters. Join us as we take a deep dive into local government across the county. Find out what the key decision makers have to say, what your money is being spent on, and how the party's policies could affect how we live. Plus, don't miss our regular feature, Westminster Watch, where we dissect the latest developments and decisions shaping the political landscape in the heart of the UK's capital. Engage with us as we delve into the issues that matter to you and explore the dynamic world of politics from a Kent perspective. Welcome to the Kent Politics Podcast. In the week, Medway Council is swimming against the economic tide, Canterbury is levelling up, and we have some interesting stats about the 11 plus exam. I'm Simon Finlay, local democracy reporter covering Kent County Council, and I'm joined by my usual accomplices, Daniel Essen, who reports on the borough and district councils. Hello. And Robert Buddy, who is the local democracy reporter for Medway. Hello. We'll also be speaking to KM political editor Paul Francis about the week in Westminster and a very special guest, Tracy Crouch, MP for Chatham and Aylesford, who has announced she'll be stepping down at the next election after 14 years in Parliament. First up, we're going to be talking to Robert Buddy. Uh, Robert, what have you been up to at Medway Council then? Well, so it's already a difficult week for Medway Council. The budget they want to propose is reliant on a central government decision and they've had to make a series of challenging cuts such as free swimming, which both the Lib Dems and the Conservative groups are criticising. But another spanner was thrown into the work this week as two councillors have been suspended from the Labour Party. Councillor Stephen Hubbard, who represents Strood North and Frinsbury, and Councillor Satinda Shokar, who represents Strood West, will sit as independents until the conclusion of an investigation into an alleged incident that occurred late last year. Oh, what's what happened then? Go on. Well, tell. so it's believed that there was some sort of fight, whether it was uh, verbal or physical is unclear at this moment, um, but at the Labour Group's Christmas party between the two councillors, so not exactly the best festive atmosphere. Details are limited, as obviously the Labour Party and the two councillors involved are keeping quiet about the whole thing, saying they're w- awaiting the uh, decision of the investigation. There are significant consequences, though, as Councillor Hubbard, a veteran councillor who was, was elected to local government before the Medway Unitary Authority was even created. He's the chair of the council's planning committee and Councillor Shokar is the vice chair of the Health and Adult Social Care Overview and Scrutiny Committee. So both will likely have to be replaced while they sit as independents. Given all that's going on at Medway at the minute, it's not really a good uh, time for Labour to be find themselves in the position to people down, isn't it? No, yeah. As you'd expect, the uh, Tories are making quite a bit of this on social media and really trying to pitch the group as divided. It's not an ideal moment for the council generally. I mean, they have to make all these unpopular cuts around the swimming, as I was mentioned. The mess around the Frinsbury Hill roadworks, where there's a good amount of uh, misinformation, miscommunication of when they're going to start, where they begin, and who's responsible. And of course, the uncertainty around the budget. With this on top, I mean, there might be truth in the saying that when it rains, it pours. Okay, well, okay, thanks, Robert, for that. Uh, moving on to the second tier uh, councils. Dan, what's been happening in your uh, neck of the woods? 
So uh, at the end of last week, I actually went on a, a walk around Canterbury with the Labour cabinet member Charlotte Cornell to talk about the City Council's levelling up project on which work is pretty much underway and is set to speed up quite soon. OK, so how much money has the government given to Canterbury City Council from the levelling up fund and what are they going to do with it? So Canterbury City Council got about £20 million from Department of Levelling Up Housing and Communities and the council's also putting in about £2 million quid of its own money as well. Um, it's going to be spent on a load of different work throughout the city but the, the big ticket items are Westgate Towers and Canterbury Castle. The whole area around the historic Westgate at the bottom of the high street is um, going to be resurfaced and turned into a sort of public square and the, the nearby Pound Lane is going to be permanently shut to traffic. Canterbury Castle is also pretty iconic. It's very historic. It's a slightly post-Norman ruin, uh, pretty much right by the the remains of the old city wall. At the moment, the whole thing is covered in scaffolding um, because they're doing a brick-by-brick survey. Um, and as part of the levelling up project, they, they plan to open it up essentially as a tourist attraction and they want to make the green around it an event space where you can hold plays and that sort of thing. Um, but there's also a load of other smaller scale work. So St George's Clock Tower at the top of the high street is going to get some seating around it. Um, the bottom level of that might be open for events or you know, cafes and other business opportunities and a load of small parks around the city are going to be getting new stuff like flower beds, new lighting, resurfacing, all that kind of stuff. I was told when I was out with uh, Cabinet Member Councillor Cornell that spades will be in the ground for, for some of that work this year and that they're expecting most of the work to be done by 2025 or 2026. Okay. Uh, we hear quite a lot about levelling up these days. What is it and what does it mean for Kent? So the, the levelling up programme was much vaunted by Boris Johnson's administration back when he was the Prime Minister. He even you know, renamed the Department of Local Government to include the phrase levelling up. Yeah, The way it actually works is it's basically a big pot of central government money the local councils can bid for, presenting you know, plans for regeneration generation and other sort of public realm projects to the government and asking for money to help fulfil those plans. Um, the government awarded all the money based on uh, to local authorities based on you know the strength and impact of the plans and the perceived need for regeneration in the area and that sort of thing. Quite a few Ken councils have actually gotten some of that funding. Um, so Dover got some for works in Dover Town Centre. Swellborough Council got some for regeneration projects in Sheerness on the Isle of Sheppey. Gravesham got some for some work in Gravesend. And Ashenborough Council got some as well. So there's quite a lot spread around Kent. But the, the, there's, of course, winners and losers when you're bidding for central government money. Gravesham only got their funding on the third round after previously being rejected. And, and Canterbury City Council had a completely separate proposal for some levelling up projects in Herne Bay, which were also rejected and have you know, pretty much been scrapped. Because at the moment, it looks like the main part of levelling up funds from central government, the big multi-million pound public works investment type stuff is over. There's no official government plans to have another round of that. So unless something changes, all of Kent's levelling up is pretty much set in stone for now. Mm, Okay, very interesting. Thanks, Dad. So, Simon, I understand you've got education, education, education on your mind this week. Not sure about the three educations, but I've been uh, intrigued by one story uh, this week. Basically, I wrote a piece to say that more than 20% of pupils gaining entry to a grammar school have done so by after they've actually failed their 11 plus, according to new figures uh, obtained by Peter Reid, who's a local education expert. And he says that 25% roughly of uh, those who get into grammar schools, of all the pupils, uh, 5% of those pupils have actually got through on what is called a head teacher's assessment panel. Essentially, there could be a number of reasons why a child might fail 11 plus, uh, but the head teacher feels sufficiently strongly that uh, those circumstances, the mitigating circumstances, are, that, are, are such that they, that they should be put in front of a panel and allowed to be given the chance to go to a grammar school, even though the, the scores might not reflect that. So why is this actually happening? Obviously, you know, we've got the selective system here and if the head teacher feels that there 
our circumstances for underperformance on the day of the exam, or there may be other problems, maybe at home due to social deprivation, something that the, the, the head teacher could, you know, put before a panel to say this is a reason why there, there are usually some sort of extenuating circumstances. It could be the death of a relative, for example, which which would be, um, you know, might put the, the the pupil off on the day of the exam itself. And how does this work compared to, say, if, if a parent was to try and appeal a, a 11 plus result? Well, an 11 plus um, fail is an 11 plus fail, and it normally doesn't um, it doesn't normally go beyond that. And if you leave the HTAs aside, the only other way that a, a, a parent can get a child into your grammar school is if they go to appeal, which is a fairly long and fairly torturous process. And there has to be pretty compelling reasons for being able to put one together. So the HTAs, as, as Peter Reid quite rightly points out, is a good way of catching those children who shouldn't be getting through the net, but are getting through the net to make sure that they get the place that they deserve to get. Well, that's what's been happening across Kent and Medway. Thanks, Dan and Robert, for being here today. Thank you. Thank you very much. Next up, we're speaking to Paul Francis, our political editor, about events in Westminster. What's the latest then, Paul? Well, I bring you news of a resolution of sorts on a tussle involving Dover Council, Ashford Council and DEFRA over where biosecurity checks on foodstuffs come into the UK from the continent. Uh, background briefly, Dover wanted to do the checks at a site near the port. Ashford wanted it at its Sevington site, which is just off the M20, as did the government. Now, the outcome appears to be that these checks will, will all be done at Ashford, where there is rather a lot of spare capacity, even though concerns have been raised that being 22 miles from the port itself is not ideal and might see some of the less scrupulous operators divert away from the M20. What sort of stuff are, are going to be checked? Well, it's a variety of foodstuffs pretty much across the board, you know, raw products, meat, anything of animal origin. Uh, these checks are important because they protect us and you know, others from consuming potentially uh, contaminated products and uh, that's why they're important and you know the councils are saying well at least Dover Council is saying that uh, it's it exposes the uh, us to the risk of more contaminated food stuff getting through the system and not even bothering to go via mm. Sevington. It seems a bit bizarre actually I mean one understands that there's not a great deal of space at the port of Dover to set up anything but they cho- the, the, the government chose a location quite a distance from the port, 22 miles, you say. You know, what are the councils saying about that then? Well, Dover Council is particularly irked by this decision uh, and it acts as its role in charge of the Port Health Authority and it's so angry that it's considering legal action against the government, although we're not quite clear on what grounds that might happen. But the government's digging its heels in and uh, the minister in charge, Lord Douglas Miller, says Sevington was always designed as a site for checking high and medium risk SBS goods, that's foodstuff. It has modern facilities that will be able to carry out checks on all sorts of consignments, uh, on plants and plant products and live animals, so it's pretty nailed down as far as the government's concerned. These checks will, will be done at 70. Now you're right, the Port of Dover the Authority believes that its checking site, which is at uh, Bastion Point, is perfectly capable of taking over these checks, uh, but is not being, going to be used. And talking about security, there's uh, 31 million being spent on making sure our, our MPs are, are, are safe. What's that all about then? 
Well, we've heard lots of stories, haven't we, in recent months about MPs feeling threatened. Uh, one MP had his office firebombed, and some MPs have been advised by the police to wear stab vests when doing constituency meetings. So there is a growing concern that uh, MPs are perhaps not as secure as they could be, and uh, this money is going to be allocated towards uh, improving that situation, offering advice to uh, MPs. And I think one of the other brands is for each MP to have a designated police officer uh, to be in contact with uh, who, who can advise them on what uh, they need to do. But it's a bit of a sorry state of affairs, isn't it, really, when you, you, we live in a kind of a, the cradle of democracy, as it were, and we're spending this amount of money on protecting MPs from, you know, serious threats of violence. Mm. Just, just, I mean, without naming names, I mean, have you spoken to any of the Kent MPs and, and do you get the sense that there's a problem in, in, in this neck of the woods? Well, I don't know whether there's a problem which is, uh, you know, greater or less than elsewhere, but I do know when this issue surfaced a few months ago, um, I spoke to one Kent MP who said he'd been advised to wear a stab vest because there was a particular person uh, who was stalking him and uh, that involved... Uh, stalking him when he was trying to do constituency meetings uh, at the end of the week. So it's difficult for MPs perhaps to operate in those circumstances. And, uh, you know, it's not terribly good for open government. Mm, OK. Listen, Paul, uh, you've got to be joining me when we're talking to Tracy Christ in a little moment. Uh, so, but thanks for the minute and um, we'll uh, speak later. See you soon. Is there a topic that you would like to be discussed on the Kent Politics Podcast? Perhaps you've got a question for one of our panel, or you'd like to comment on a hot topic in local or national government. Get in touch by emailing or sending a voice note to Kent Politics Podcast at thekmgroup.co.uk. She's one of the best-known and well-liked MPs in Kent, if not the country, whose down-to-earth style of doing politics has earned her many admirers along the way. Tracy Crouch, the Conservative member for Chatham and Aylesford, announced the other day she will not be standing at the next election. Tracy, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. You're very welcome. I have to ask you, what prompted your decision to stand down then? It's genuinely just having gone through my own journey of cancer and coming out the other side, feeling well, feeling very content, feeling very happy, that I just want to seek you know, another career. I love being an MP and there's lots of wonderful things about it, but I turn 50 next year and I just wanted to go and try something else. It's as simple as that. There's no, there's no conspiracy behind it. I'm predicted to win my seat. In fact, I've seen some stuff that Paul's been writing recently with uh, graphs showing that Chatham and Aylesford is a, is a predicted conservative hold. So it is just the the opportunity to, to leave now. It's a, It's a good time to go. Can I ask, Tracy, are you looking for a clean break from politics or would you entertain the idea of it, something with political connections? No, I'm looking to do something other than politics. I'm interested in all sorts of different fields, whether that's sport, whether that's the charity sector, the environment. So there's you know lots of opportunities out there to use some of the experiences that I've had in my 14 years in Parliament and just forge a, a new career for what I think is my sort of kind of third phase of the career. So say I turn 50 next year. And the thing about politics and, and being elected to parliament is that it you know, more often than not is is a five-year cycle with, you know, out any early exit. It's not like any other job in the country where, you know, if, if you decide that 
it's time for you to leave. You can just hand in your resignation. So um, it, it was just an opportunity to to use this moment of a general election to move on to something else. Have you, have you had any contact with anyone who'd like to make you an offer or something? Oh, it has been, I've had lots of very nice uh, people get in touch. Um, so, uh, but I'm, you know, I only made the announcement a couple of weeks ago and actually just pausing, reflecting on what comes next. I'm not in any rush. Uh, and we're not expecting the election till later on in the year. And at the moment, I've still got a job to do. So, um, you know, I'm, I'm sort of kind of fairly relaxed and laid back about it. You've been in Parliament for 14 years and you've been a Minister of State. Is there anything you'll miss about the place? Oh gosh, loads of things. I mean, the thing that I miss is also the thing that I fear as well, which is, you know, I'm quite institutionalised. You know, there's a routine to my life and I've been doing that routine for uh, for 14 years. And it's quite a scary sort of kind of thought to to sort of kind of walk away from that. It's you know, a bit of a, of a comfort blanket knowing exactly what you're going to be doing each week. Not obviously the exact things that you're going to be talking about or the way the, direct, the day unfolds, but you kind of roughly know what the schedule is, what the routine is. And and I will definitely, you know, sort of kind of miss that. But at the same time, I miss my constituents. They're wonderful and their support is incredible. But the thing that thrills me most about the job is helping them, is supporting them through their crisis. People only come to their MP when they've reached that crisis point. And, you know, there is something really rewarding about sitting there and trying to support them through that crisis. Not to say that we solve every single problem, we don't. Um, but actually the fact that we try, I think, is something that I really value within my day-to-day uh, role. Is, is there anything that uh, you won't miss about the place? Um, yeah, uh, of course there are, but um, you know, things like the abuse that we're getting. I mean, you, you guys have both been involved in the political world for a long time. Um, you know, Paul certainly knows me from the days that I worked for Michael Howard back in the mid nineties. And, you know, things have definitely changed in that time. Um, things have changed since 2010. And the feeling of vulnerability as a politician is is increasing. And that is not something I will miss. Is that something that's driven by the internet, social media, or do you think things have changed at Westminster since COVID? I think it's a combination, to be honest with you, of lots of different things. The way people engage with politicians is something that has altered. You know, in the old days, people would write a letter and not expect an instant reply and you know you would happily get a, a letter through the post from your member of parliament a month later with yeah, the concerns whereas now someone will write to you and literally follow it up within hours asking why you haven't yet replied the volume is is very different um i would say we get 500 maybe 600 emails a day and that's on top of the two deliveries of posts that we still get um plus the phone calls and the interactions on social media and everything else. So I think, you know, a lot of that has changed, but the aggression within some of the communication has definitely altered. The fact that people think that we're there as that the word public servant, you know, is something that they mean think that they that means that we are mandated, you know, they've given us a mandate to work in a particular way. And if we don't do it, then you know, we are the worst people in the world and you know, people don't think of you know, the second nature now to call us things like child murderers and stuff like that and you know it's really quite offensive and so yeah it's, it's got a lot more challenging it's not the, the reason i'm going but it certainly you know it was a factor in my consideration but the 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 stock of the politician 
is at a pretty low ebb at the minute and, and probably not helped by uh, last week's shenanigans over the, the Gaza debate, the SNP debate, which sort of ended in, in sort of, you know, what, what most people call the shambles. Do you think that in that way, politicians don't help themselves? Politicians have always been the lowest viewed industry. In fact, actually, if you look back to... Apart from us. <laughs> Well, and and that there is that's true. I mean, there is a there is a um, you know, certain industries where we're always at the lowest end of what public opinion is. Uh, for some reason, I can't remember why, but I was looking at this from William Wilberforce's time, um, and I think it was sort of kind of as part of a discussion around scrapping the Vagrancy Act. And you, you know, politicians were then considered to be the lowest um, uh, rated occupations, and journalists and estate agents, bless them. Um, and, you know, so it's never really changed. I just think that there is definitely a different way of communicating now with people. People can do things anonymously online and it just makes you feel a little bit more vulnerable about where these threats are coming from. Paul's going to come in here at this point with a question, aren't you, Paul? Yeah, it was related to this discussion, Tracy, and you know, we've heard about this £31 million package to... Uh, improve security for M- MPs. That's a bit of an indictment, isn't it, of the of the system? Yes, I think it's very sad. I think that the Speaker has worked incredibly hard in terms of trying to ensure that members of Parliament do feel safe, and we have ways of reporting any concerns. Uh, and that is something that I, you know, very much welcome. I have a very good relationship with Ken Police, and I feel you know, very secure in, in that sense. But there are still vulnerabilities that we have, uh, and ultimately, at the end of the day, you know, you don't want politicians to be disconnected from the society, from the communities that they live in, and I think. That's where it becomes a challenge. You know, I still consider myself to be a very ordinary, normal person. I live in my constituency. You know, I go to the supermarket. I go and watch, you know, sport in the local clubs. Whether I was at Chatham Town at the weekend, you know, I'll go and watch the rugby. You know, I wander around on my bike. I just, you know, you want people to feel. Uh, you want politicians to be normal. You want them to be like you. You want them to have their ordinary lives. But it's very difficult for them to do that if they don't feel safe. And I think you know that's where the challenge really lies now. I just want to take you back to the point at which you resigned as the from the ministerial job you had about betting and uh, this, the slowness you saw in implementing those changes. Was that the right thing to do at the time, or do you regret that at all? I've never regretted it. I've ne- not for a nanosecond have I regretted it. Yeah, and for me, it was walking away from what I thought was the best job in government. But you know, as as uh, an example of why I don't regret it, I got an email from somebody uh, after I announced that I wasn't going to be standing, saying that they had put off emailing me for nearly five years now. But without a doubt, he thought that I'd saved his life because of those that policy change. And, you know, it, I, I still to this day think that the impact of that policy change was significant in people's lives. People who were struggling with gambling addiction, who were no longer basically wasting thousands of pounds on these machines. And so, no, Paul, I don't regret it and I will never regret it. In fact, I try not to regret things anyway, because there's no point to kind of living a life full of regret. Um, and um, But no, I, I, I think it's, you know, one of the proudest moments of my time in Parliament. You, um, you at the time, um, 
I think you gave an interview to The Guardian, you said that it was slightly ironic that a lot of these fixed odds bedding terminals were in bedding shops in the poorest parts of the country, which, you know, which was absolutely true. There were hundreds of euro, whether obviously, well, this is causes a huge amount of trouble financially for a family if um, if someone has got a problem with betting. Um, and you grew up in a single parent household where money was was tight. You know, did that have a bearing? Your background did that have a bearing on how you sort of empathise with the the consequences of this? So there's nothing ir- ironic about it. It was absolutely factual that there are more betting shops in deprived communities than there are in affluent communities. You know, people are being targeted because they have a dream, and uh, the uh, and that is still the case today. So I was very much on these particular machines. I I was very much influenced by what was happening in my backyard at Chatham. The, the and I'd spoken about Fogtees before I was a minister, and I'd spoken about gambling addiction as a backbench MP representing constituents in Chatham. Just so happened that I was then appointed into a ministerial position with gambling as a policy responsibility. Um, so very fortuitous in many respects. But I would have carried on campaigning about Fogtees even as a backbencher. Uh, I'm not anti-gambling. I bet myself. But these machines were just a sort of kind of casino content on the high street that were really encouraging people to waste a lot of money. And, you know, one of the challenges that I would give to the industry when we were having discussions on that, you know, who would always say, yes, you can lose big, but you can win big. You know, one of my challenges to them was always, well, go and find me someone who's won big and not put it back into the machine. And they couldn't do that because people would instantly gamble it away. And I think that, you know, was one of the sort of kind of problems that people's lives were being completely ruined as a consequence. Do you feel your background had any sort of um, bearing on the sort of uh, empathy you felt for for the, the consequences of it? And um, it's my background and, you know, how I was brought up is, is who I am. It's mm. shaped, you know, my views on many issues, not just this particular issue. I try to be as empathetic as possible uh, in whatever I do. And, you know, I try not to sort of kind of make judgment and, uh, you know, cast judgment. Um, and I just sort of kind of look at individuals and their circumstances as best as I can. But, you know, where I came from, how I grew up, the, the values that were instilled at me by my mom or through school are very much who I am today. I just wanted to sort of bring you back to what you kind of said to the very beginning about your breast cancer diagnosis and subsequent treatment, which, you know, has been successful. Obviously had a role in in uh, your decision for to not stand at the next election. Did that sort of make you reevaluate your personal life, you know, with your partner, your son? Did that just make you take a completely different look at, um, at the way you live your life? Yeah, very much so. I mean, I think, you know, when you've had any kind of um, medical condition, health scare, you know, it certainly sort of makes you realise that you're only on this planet for a certain number of days and therefore, you know, you need to prioritise each day, each week and so on. Um, And I think, so that was a very important part in my um, decision. Climbing Kilimanjaro with seven other women, six other women, however many other women that we climbed Kilimanjaro with, was also a really important part of that. Um, people said before it, you know, it's a life-changing experience. And I didn't really understand what they meant um, by that, but it certainly does make you look at life in a very different way. And I just 
sit there. And I think, you know, it is really important to look at life and enjoy it and, you know, make the most of it. And I said after I'd finished my chemotherapy and radiotherapy that I was going to go out there and live life to the max. And it's really difficult to do that when you're a politician and, you know, you're working seven days a week and you're a slave to the email. So there is just, an, you know, a re-evaluation as well. Mm. You, you chose to share your diagnosis diagnosis and treatment quite publicly. Do you think it made it easier or made it more difficult? What was the thinking behind that? Well, the thinking was very much a case of that I'd been spotted in oncology uh, a couple <laughs> of occasions. And without meaning to um, downgrade your profession, the truth is, is that somebody could have sold that story to the newspaper and would have got a substantial sum of money for it. And I very much feel that it was, I uh, very much felt that it was my news and that I wanted to be in charge of when it was public. So we took a decision very early on. My husband and I took a decision very early on that I would share the the diagnosis, but I would make it a very positive um, story about how important it is to be aware of yourself and to check your breasts. Or indeed, I tried to make it, you know, non-gender specific because I wanted to make sure that men were very aware as well that it's important that they check themselves for cancer as well. And so, you know, turning something that could have been a potentially a negative story into a positive story was something that, you know, I felt very strongly about. And going through that diagnosis and and the publicity around it gave me a huge amount of strength. People got in touch with me in their thousands to tell me their own personal stories, to wish me luck. Uh, And there were some really, truly inspiring stories. Uh, within that. And people, I think, have been on that journey with me. And it's nice that even today I go to events and, you know, people ask after me and they say, I look well, you know, and all those things. And I, so actually it's turned out for everybody's benefit. I've raised awareness of breast cancer. I've showcased that you can still work during a uh, breast cancer treatment because we were still I was still working through that so that if you are active and healthy and you brace the outdoors during treatment you know it, it can reduce the side effects but most importantly I hope that I've raised awareness of early diagnosis and the positive outcomes just going back to um parliament and your job as it were if if your son Freddie came up to you and said uh, I'd like to enter politics I'm going to stand for election what would you think well, he's already stood for election, Paul. He's been elected to the school council. Um, you know, his political career has already started. But uh, no, I'd, I'd, of course, I'd want him to do whatever he wants to do. You know, he knows already at the age of eight the challenges that, you know, being a politician can bring. But at the same time, I think it's, you know, something that's broadened his interest and his horizon. So if it's something he wants to do, of course, I would uh, encourage him to do it. There's been several damaging events which have hit the reputation of Parliament, not least the, the Partygate saga. How much damage do you think that did to politicians and politics generally? I'm not sure it did damage to politicians in general. I think it did damage to politicians specifically. There was some sort of kind of issues there. But I think on the whole, the public know that, you know, politicians just, we go into politics to do our best, right? And I don't think people have a view that everyone is out partying and, you know, taking the mickey on certain issues or whatever. I I genuinely think that the public understand what it is that we do. Had you decided that in Chatham and Aylesford this time round, the polls were looking a bit iffy or that's the reason why you stood down or did you... No, not at all, not for a nanosecond. And in fact, actually, 
uh, as I've already noted, you know, Paul, with his excellent analysis of politics across the county, published a graph a couple of weeks ago that very much made it clear that Chatham and Aylesford was still going to be a conservative hold. Uh, so, no, I had um, uh, no concerns about that, and I still have no concerns about that. What would be the main issues that anyone fighting that election will be um, will have to have an opinion on, or will have to face in the next parliament should they win? In Chatham and Aylesford or yeah. in general? No, it's well, I think, so Chatham and Aylesford, what you have to remember is Chatham and Aylesford, is, it spans two authorities. And both those authorities at the moment are facing significant financial challenges. And that means that some of the investment in some of the core services is really difficult. And so I think the candidates uh, will have to make it clear how they support the local authorities in order to ensure that they're getting the right investment in the infrastructure. And that's really difficult. And I also think that one of the challenges that the candidates will face is the fact that we've had significant, in my view, overdevelopment uh, within the constituency. And I have stood up my constituents throughout those applications, making it clear my objections to those planning applications, particularly in light of the fact that they don't often come with significant infrastructure, for example, in health services. And I think the consequences of that is going to come, you know, it's going to start to sort of kind of appear. So those are the real challenges is around infrastructure. A lot of that, sadly, is not to do with national government. You know, it's to do with the local planning um, system. Uh, And so I do feel that whoever comes next, that they do have to sort of kind of make it clear that they are going to be standing up for their constituents and shouting from the rooftops for these investments. Tracy, it's a a hard hill to climb though, isn't it, given where the polls are now? I know politicians always like to say, well, the only poll that matters is the one that takes place on polling day. Uh, are you confident that you can turn around the party's fortunes? I mean, the party as a whole can turn around its fortunes to be a credible force against Labour? Yes, I do. I think it's really important. I think the budget next week is an important opportunity to prove that we are able to look after the economies. We're going to sort of kind of strengthen it. I think if we can get to grips with the uh, what's termed the small boats issue, then I think that is something that people will look at very clearly. So yes, I do think that we can do that. I think it's really important to stress that I'm only leaving Parliament. I'm not leaving the Conservative Party. You haven't handed back your membership card. (laughs) Most definitely not. If you look back on your 14 years in Parliament, your time in politics in Kent, what are your memories? What are your thoughts? Well, first and foremost, I was really proud to be a Kent MP. I grew up in Kent. You know, I grew up in Hyde. I went to school in Folkestone. I worked for Kent MPs, Michael Howard and Damien Green, before I was an MP. And, you know, now being a Kent MP is something that I feel really, really proud of. I will miss that. It's something that, you know, I've always really, yeah, if, if, if I was to get another tattoo, I would have something in <laughs> the county Kent. Um, so, you know, I'm going to, I am going to miss that. And I hope whoever comes next has pride in our county, has a connection uh, in the county, understands the different challenges that representing a seat from both Medway and Kent can bring, but really will stand up for them in Parliament. Tracy Crouch, thank you very much indeed for your time today. And whatever you do, all the very, very best for the future. That was MP Tracy Crouch, who's standing down, very sadly, at the next election. Thanks to everyone for joining me on this week's podcast. We'll be back next week when we hope to welcome Medway Council Leader Vince Maple on the show. Don't forget to tune in to KMTV at 5pm for their politics show. All the best now. Thanks for listening to the Kent Politics Podcast. 
Don't forget to check out stories throughout the week on the politics page of Kent Online. And you can watch the Kent Politics Show with Rob Bailey on KMTV every Friday at 5pm or on demand at kmtv.co.uk. This has been an I Am Listening original podcast. For more information, head over to our website, im-listening.co.uk.